Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. Here today with two very special guests, Todd Satcherdoti and Oren Hoffman, longtime entrepreneurs and now uh, both uh, starting companies and uh, creating fun together. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Why don't you guys give a brief background on yourselves, uh, your entrepreneurial background, and then why you decided to team up and start this fun together? Uh, sure. Start before this started a company called uh, LiveRamp. LiveRamp's a middleware company, uh, moves data between marketing applications. And Todd and I have been longtime friends, longtime collaborators. We were invest in each other's companies in the past, uh, was on the vo- board, advisory board of each other's companies. So we love working together. Awesome. Sure. I founded a company called Bright Roll in 2006, which was acquired by Yahoo in 2014. And uh, really through that experience, I uh, did a lot of work with Warren in, in lots of different roles where in some cases I was the CEO, some cases he was the CEO, in some cases we were both on the board. And I think fundamentally, I just really enjoyed the process of working together. And we were always tinkering with ideas of how we could do something more institutional, you know, once our company sold. Cool. And how did you guys uh, settle on early growth B2B platforms as a, as a thesis? Or when you first started a line that you were going to start a fund, how did the idea for what you would focus on evolve over time? I mean, I think fundamentally, Orrin and I have always been really sort of infatuated with this B2B platform space and specifically a certain type of business model that we think is uh, very compelling and really differentiated within the broader SaaS uh, ecosystem. We spent a lot of time over the last couple of years trying to figure out where is the entry point into those companies where, you know, we think we have a differentiated view and where we think our, you know, operational experience is particularly relevant to that company at that time in their growth. Um, and so, you know, we sort of define early growth as five million in ARR and above. Uh, it's generally where companies have found product market fit and expanding, uh, but probably haven't made that complete transition to being a platform yet. And we think really that's where we can add the most value and we have the most unique insight. Right. And from a sheer market perspective, how is starting a fund with this focus now different from starting, starting it five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago? How's it evolved over time? I mean, I think that one of the big trends that we've seen in the last really five years is how big some of these markets are relative to, I think, what people projected the size of the markets when these companies were started. And you can look at the public markets for the number of what we would define as B2B platform companies that are now worth you know, more than $10 billion um, and how many of those companies were created in the last 10 years. And I think many of those categories, you know, if you looked at the initial market size of the opportunity the company was focused on, people really underestimated how big these companies could get. Uh, and I think the reason for that is we've seen companies that are able to really dominate a, you know, a small category and transition that uh, market share position into adjacent categories and become much larger businesses than um, than people had originally believed they could be. Right. Or, or you've been a big uh, proponent of the idea of starting a niche market, own that market, and dominate. When does that uh, when does that not work? Because you know I, I started in the rap battle market, and uh, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> it was it wasn't that big. Uh, w- when does it not work, or, or how is that? How do you think about that? Well, if you can dominate your market, you're usually in a really good spot to move into adjacent markets. And it basically doesn't work if like the team is not smart enough to move into adjacent markets. That was my problem. 
And and sometimes you don't realize how big the market is. So sometimes you think the the the, the niche is relatively small, and then you're wrong. It's actually three, four, five x that. So you have a lot more growth. Of course, you don't want to overvalue the niche because then you can. So, but if if you can dominate a niche even as small as like ten million a year. Um, if you can get to 50% market share relatively quickly, it really gives you a big beachhead to move into other places. Yeah. Questions I often ask investors is if you could start any company, how would you sort of navigate the idea maze? And for you two, you've both decided to start companies relatively recently. So I'm curious, uh, and maybe Orin, we could start with you. How did you sort of think about SafeGraph relative to any other company uh, you could have started within, within B2B platform space? Well, I think when you're starting a company, any type of company, whether B2B, B2C or nonprofit or whatever, I think you, you know, it's the, the, the classic thing where you need to figure out what do you think is going to be really big in the future and what's the Venn diagram overlap with what other people don't think is going to be very big in the future. And then the last Venn diagram overlap is where do you uniquely have some sort of value? So the first two is enough to probably be a really good investor. Um, but to be an entrepreneur, you need the third one as well, because that's where you add some sort of value. So if you think like self-driving cars is going to be really big in the future and you think other people don't think that, of course, no one thinks that. But if you thought other people, you still have to be someone who's like good enough to or have some sort of engineering capability to do self-driving cars if you want to start a company there. Right. And so what was that for SafeGraph? Uh, well, you know, just like – being a data only company is, is, has traditionally been a really bad idea. There's been very few companies that just sell data that have sold for over a billion dollars or worth over a billion dollars today. Um, that maybe been started, let's say in the last 20 years. So it's traditionally been a bad idea. Then you can have some sort of reasons. We have some reasons why we think that is going to be a good idea in the future. And then there are very small number of people that actually have had success in data in the past 15 years. And so you just kind of put that together and it's kind of a unique opportunity for that. And then in, in our case, there's like kind of a fourth Venn diagram overlap, which is not only will this be big and will this, maybe other people don't think it's going to be big in the future, but is this something that can really impact society? I think once you have some sort of a few wins on your belt, like Todd and I do, you're looking not just to build a great business, but you're also looking to have some sort of very big or, or, or outsized impact on society, making society better. Yeah. And did you play with a few other ideas before settling on, on SafeGraph or was that sort of the first, the first idea you've landed on and you've been pursuing it ever since? Well, I've been thinking about this particular idea for almost 20 years. Wow. So it's been in my head and just wasn't ready to take it on. Um, and it obviously it's changed over, over time, but I wasn't able to take it on. And, and for people who read a lot of science fiction or people, you know, there's, you, you always have these kind of ideas in your head from when you're a kid. Uh, and so finally we're at, at a point where I thought that the market was ready for this. There is a big opportunity for this. And then I was ready personally for this type of thing. And, and Todd, how about you? How did you navigate the idea maze regarding your next company? Sure. So, I mean, I think about it as three factors. The first is there's a really big opportunity in a market that's growing really fast. I think first and foremost, that gives you a big market opportunity also covers for a lot of mistakes. And I've had success with that in the past. Uh, the second is it really needs to be a problem set that I understand like as the customer. I've been much more successful when I can sort of put myself in the seat of the actual customer rather than, you know, working on something that's really, 
you know, far away from my core. Um, and I think lastly, it just has to be something that I'm like truly passionate about. And, uh, you asked the question about, you know, did, what ideas did we throw out? So, uh, after Bright Roll sold, we all worked at Yahoo for, uh, about two and a half years. And we all took about a year off after that to sort of figure out what we were going to do next. And I ended up bringing back together, uh, eight folks from that original team. And the first project we worked on was something in the crypto space. And we worked for about three months uh, on something. And really it was us all getting back into building product ourselves. A lot of us had been in management. And fundamentally, it was unclear that it was a big market. I didn't fundamentally understand the problem set, and really none of us caught the bug. Uh, and so it was just absolutely crystal clear that that was something to put on the shelf and you know focus on something that uh, really checked those three boxes. And was it a consumer crypto product? Was it infrastructure? We were really replicating what we had done on the sort of ad marketplace side of our business, where we were programmatically combining different marketplace products. So in our case, in the crypto space, we were basically building a, what you could think of as like a high frequency trading platform in between all these exchanges, which was very similar to our uh, programmatic marketplace product. Even though I think there was economics there at, you know, assuming the market continued to grow, it just, nobody caught the bug. Yeah. And can you talk about the idea you're pursuing now? So we haven't fully announced what we're doing, but we're uh, essentially building a developer platform that allows any engineer to be a data engineer, uh, which is essentially a set of problems that we had internally at Brightroll. Uh, we built a bunch of internal solutions around, and uh, we think those are commercially viable products in their own right. Cool. Go- going back to the B2B platform space, how do you sort of slice up the different subsectors or different sub opportunities in which, uh, or some markets in which you could potentially invest in? How do you sort of think about it? And are, are there some that you, some sort of whole spaces that you sort of written off say, Hey, there might be good businesses here, but they're not, you know, going to be 10 plus billion business dollar businesses here. It's really hard to get to 50% market share and it doesn't happen often in, in B2B or in B2C. It really only happens in, in, in basically four categories. So the first one's like a data co-op. Uh, the second is, uh, some sort of marketplace, like a B2B marketplace. The third will be some sort of middleware company. And the fourth be some sort of data service or something. It's really hard to get the network effect going. So a traditional SaaS company, probably like 95% of B2B investing, there isn't really a core network effect. And in that case, the winner maybe has 25% market share. Number two has 20. Number three has 15. And all three probably were good venture investments in the network. In the, in the, in the network business, we were looking at a platform. Usually there's a winner take most and, and you really need to be in that winner if you're going to, to reap the rewards. Yeah. And I would say the, the majority of our time is spent in what I would consider to be traditional enterprise software categories. Uh, but as Orrin mentioned, all of these, you know, four cases in which people end up often with, you know, 50% market share or more is really tied to a specific business model. It's less tied to the specific category that the company is in. And while we don't spend like the majority of our time looking at healthcare or auto or shipping or, you know, some category that's arguably non-core based on our experience, you know, these business models can be very powerful in different categories. And we by no means would exclude those types of categories from things we would look at, even though, you know, to be fair, the majority of cases are what I would consider to be traditional enterprise software. Yeah. And let's go through those four uh, archetypes that, that aren't mentioned. Or when you unpack the first one, data co-ops, can you have examples of, of businesses in that space and where you're excited there? 
Sure. Yeah. A, data, a traditional data co-op is where you, you get your raw goods for free, which is data. So um, you get a whole bunch of companies, let's say, giving you data. And then you you use this data to then create some sort of value on top of that for everyone who's contributing the data. So maybe a traditional thing might be like a salary data co-op where all these companies put their salaries into one central company. And then that company gives you benchmarking on the way back. One of my favorite data co-ops is a company called Verisk. Uh, and they're a public company and they're just a, a brilliantly created company. And they really are a, a core utility for the insurance world. And all the insurance companies submit their claims data to Verisk. And Verisk basically tells these insurance companies if they seem a similar claim. And that drastically reduces fraud because the number one way really to do fraud in insurance is to submit multiple claims to multiple insurance companies. Uh, how about B2B marketplaces? Where, what types of uh, marketplaces B2B are you most excited about? And what are the sort of specific you know, KPIs or metrics that you're looking for when evaluating marketplaces specifically to see if they're working? The B2B marketplace of the, of the four is probably the most rare of the four. It's hard to find. There's usually some sort of marketplace component yeah. to it. So if you think of a typical middleware company, like my last company, LiveRamp, is a typical middleware company, and LiveRamp has you know, about well over 50% market share in its niche, it is essentially a marketplace. So if you think of a middleware company, usually there's companies that want to uh, take advantage of integrations. And on the other side, there are integrations. So you think of it as buyers and sellers right. um, in any typical way. And so it looks almost all middleware companies. So if you, uh, another typical middleware company might be Plaid. So you have all these different types of, you know, so it's a similar type of um, thing with, where you can think of it as a marketplace. Yeah. Is Plaid more of a API service? You could think of it as an API service, but the reason why they've been so dominant is that they have this kind of core marketplace component. So essentially you have these buyers and sellers of a way it's hard to get the sellers without the buyers, hard to get the buyers without the sellers. Uh, and so you have this real network effect, this real virtuous circle happens once you take off. It'd be very hard to compete with a company like that. They're just doing incredibly well, a really great company. I was going to add, when, you know, when Orr and I first put the list together of, say, the top, you know, 25 or 50 companies that we thought uh, really, you know, were compelling within the definitions of B2B platforms that we had created, I think what was surprising to me was how many of the companies actually ended up in two or more of these four paradigms. So there are quite a few companies that have a data platform or data co-op component to their business and deliver their services via API. And when you look at the fundamentals of the business, it looks like a marketplace. Um, it's not always, you know, three or four of the four, but I think it's quite surprising how few of them are in just one of the categories. And really that's one of the, I think, telltale signs of what makes these companies great is that they're leveraging multiple of these disciplines to their advantage. Right. And earlier you mentioned, you know, most of them are traditional enterprise, but how do you guys think about sort of verticals and which are ripe for B2B platforms and which perhaps are less ripe? I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time focused on verticals because I think some of the best B2B platform companies have come out of verticals that I wouldn't have expected would have produced a great B2B platform. Uh, one company that Warren and I both love, uh, which is Carta, which I think when I originally heard about the business, it was presented to me as here's a company building software for your cap table. And at the time I was running Brightroll, our cap table was managed by our law firm. And I used to joke, you know, if you're lucky, you only have one mistake in your cap table. And most people have more than one. Um, and I just never would have thought fundamentally that that was a category that would have produced a B2B platform. Uh, but I think then you flip it around, you see 
how quickly they got to significant market share within private companies in Silicon Valley and continue to expand that both in terms of this original vertical they were focused on, but also the adjacent categories. It, it's the fundamentals of the business that made me excited about it. It's not that they were focused on cap tables initially. Right. So I personally don't spend a lot of time focused on verticals. Yeah. I mean, you want to either do something that's like really, really hard and annoying to do with all these different gates. So one of the companies that we love that we invest in is a company called Marketa. And it's just like such a, everything they do, they're creating these like credit cards and there's gazillion gates and all these different regulations. It's really technical, really technically really difficult. And it takes a very bespoke knowledge to do what they do. It's just incredibly difficult to do what they do. So either you want to do something like that. Or you want to play in a place where just like there's all these different vendors and you have to move that you have to get if you think of Pla, there's 10,000 plus banks in the United States and you all need to interact with them and move data and they don't like each other necessarily they're competing with one another. So it's hard to if you think of uh, LiveRamp, like the core function of LiveRamp is just because you have so many vendors uh, and that's really happening everywhere. So I think the if you think of like what's the number one thing that's been happening in the world of B2B in the last 15 years is just explosion of vendors, right? The average company today has 10x the vendors than they did 10 years ago. Uh, it's growing at just a crazy rate. It's way easier to sell into a company than you've ever, than you ever had, uh, ever could before. But the problem is when you have an explosion of vendors, you have data that's living in all these different places. And then you need to coordinate all these vendors. You need to move data around from all these vendors. And that gives huge opportunities for new companies that kind of sit on top of these like somewhat new companies. Right. And are they, are they like search engines for these vendors or like Amazon for these vendors or what, what, you know, enormous company will be built? Off that trend. Well, I think there's already, there's already so many companies. So, I mean, LiveRamp's a very uh, particular example of a company that's just focused on mar- marketing technology vendors and it sits on top of these vendors and moves data. Some of them are vendors have been around for 20, 30 years, like Google or Comcast or something, but some, some of them are relatively new and you have to be able to move data around effectively. So if you think of yourself, if you think of yourself, if you're a, a particular person at a company, you're a general. And you have all of these different assets at your disposal. You have people that you work with, but you also have all of these great vendors uh, that you work with. And and almost every company today has more vendors than people. Um, but ninety nine percent of companies has more have more vendors than people. So you have all these different vendors, and you have to you want to leverage them. You're paying a lot of money for them. They're really really powerful. Most of these vendors you're only leveraging in a very small way. So imagine if you hired the superstar, you hired Eric Torenberg, the superstar to work for you. And, you know, you're only using 10% of, of his assets that you could use. That's not a great, you know, he's not going to be happy and you're not getting the most out of him. So can you use these? If you can, the more you can coordinate these vendors, the more powerful they can become. Right. One metric that I've noticed just from starting a company in, you know, 2019 versus starting a company in 2006 is how often someone asked me for the corporate credit card. In 2006, I could basically swipe the card for everything the company ever needed. And it just wasn't that often that somebody needed that card. I, I feel today there's a SaaS vendor being signed up for every two or three days and someone needs the corporate credit card. And it's just amazing to me how many more vendors we're using than, you know, frankly, I'd ever used before. Yeah. And Oren, one of the companies you, you got involved with was uh, Siftery, which was a, I think a review site for, for vendors or discovery platform for vendors. What are uh, any lessons learned from from that experience? Or, Well, I think one just lesson that in, in general, what, what Todd said is really important is that the number one skill set in the past hundred years has just been this ability to 
recruit, retain, manage really, really talented people. And that skill set is obviously still important. And there's a hundred thousand books and courses and MBA things on how to do that. But the likely the number one skill set in the next hundred years is the ability to uh, select and manage vendors. And to the best of my knowledge, there's no good books written on it. There's no courses at Harvard Business School on it. It's just an incredibly difficult skill set to learn. You often have to learn by doing. It's very product oriented type of skill set. But if you know, any of your listeners are looking to develop a skill set that seems to be the most important one to develop, but with the least guidelines of how to develop it. Right. And so if you were taking a stab at what the, you know, HBS school of selecting or course of selecting vec, vec, uh, vendors would, would contain in it, what do you think that that study will have? Well, in some ways that is just really just the, if, if you think of what's the 2019 entrepreneurial experience, it's that you're basically like doing all this different research on different vendors. You're trying to put them together in a way you're ordering them in some sort of way. It's like you have all these ingredients. These vendors are all these ingredients and you're becoming this chef and you don't know exactly, should I do two parts this one and one part this? And do I sprinkle this? And do I need to fire this or low temperature this thing or whatever else it might be? So it is a, I don't think, I don't have the answers. I don't know Todd has the, like we're still figuring out ourselves as entrepreneurs. It's a really, really hard thing. Uh, and often these kind of very tech savvy people who have kind of grew up on using these types of vendors are the ones that are, are most successful at it. Yeah, I mean, I would say it, it strikes me as much more like an engineering task than traditional business task is because it's not just about managing vendors once they're selected. It's really about figuring out which pieces of the puzzle to put together that are going to drive the most value for you now and then not lock you into some system that's not going to be correct in the future that you're going to have to like rip out and unwind. And that feels a lot more like kind of technical decisions and tech debt right. than it does like traditional business. Uh, but I think the flip side is, is that it opens so much opportunity for software companies to come in and solve this complexity. And, you know, many of the most interesting companies that, you know, Warren and I spend our time talking to or, or are pursuing are companies that are frankly solving like deep integration problems that hundreds or thousands of companies are dealing with. And it's just so much easier to solve that problem once and sell it to a thousand companies than it is to expect each company to frankly solve that on their own. Um, so I think there is this, this skill set, but there's also going to be a lot of software come to bear uh, in solving the problems for companies. Right. I recently went through the 2013 engineering list of tasks that we did when I was at LiveRamp. And I think probably about 85 to 90% of what we did in 2013 uh, spent all these great engineers that we recruited and it was really hard to get these people in the door. But 85 to 90% of the tasks we could do today with vendors. Wow. Uh, so there's just been a huge explosion in not only the number of vendors, but also the capabilities of what they all can do. And so that does mean today that potentially you need less people. And you need people who are very good at being capital allocators. In some ways, are you a Warren Buffett? Right. Are you good at making these investments um, to use vendors? Are you good at putting these things together? And so it does take a little bit of a, a different type of skill set. And so maybe a lot of the challenges that you've had in the past as a company, like how do I recruit people? I need to maybe get another offshore or another second market. People are always talking about like, should I open another office in Denver or something like that? Uh, maybe you actually just need like an extremely small number of really talented people. Maybe you're going to see a lot more companies that look like Instagram or WhatsApp or Kylie Jenner's company 
Disney or, you know, all these companies that have just have a mass amount of leverage where they're able to really use vendors to the, to a high degree. Let's talk more about what's different about building companies in 2019 versus building companies in the early 2000s in terms of what skills, uh, are, are different in terms of what you need as a CEO leader, uh, but then also what playbooks you still take versus what playbooks you throw out. I mean, I think the number one thing is, is really just understanding how can your employees get leverage from all these different types of tools? And if you're recruit for, for instance, if you're hiring people in San Francisco Bay Area, these people are incredibly difficult to bring in and they're incredibly expensive. So therefore, to, and to keep these people, you want them just working on things that are really hard for them to do. So if you have them working on things that are always hard for them to do, maybe you can start using vendors for all the things that are a little bit less hard to do. Um, so how do you, how do you leverage them in the way? And the number one place where there are vendors for today are developer tools. And so a, a, a developer today probably can be 10x more efficient than they were 10 years ago. Um, or at least 5x more efficient than they were 10 years ago. And that's a massive difference. That maybe needs you 5x the number of people to, to accomplish the same thing or, and, and maybe a salesperson is 2x or 3x. There's still some tools, but it's, you, there's only so many meetings you can take in a day and you still have to go sell, meet with people and fly somewhere to, to go sell something. But in engineering, certainly in marketing, in certain functions, you should be able to really leverage the tools out there. And luckily, engineering is like the biggest bottleneck that most people have. Uh, so I can see a scenario where you're going to just have the best engineers, a small number of the best engineers working together in these very tight-knit groups like the SEAL Team 6. And then you have all these other amazing tools at your disposal. And I think the, the number one company that everyone would, should be familiar with to look at is WhatsApp. I think they just did this brilliantly pre pre acquisition WhatsApp. They used vendors very very effectively. Uh, they were the Twilio's number one customer, and that would be that's a core messaging thing that you would think that they would have to build in house, but yet they they used Twilio for. So they were just really adept at only really only doing the most important things internally in their company and using lots of other tools externally. Right. One of the big differences, I would say, at least in how I spend my time as a CEO is uh, how much of my time I spend trying to find what I would call some sort of on-ramp to the product that doesn't require traditional sales and marketing. Um, and I think that there are so many distribution channels, whether that's for content or some form of a solution, um, and so many ways to sort of target that audience with that information that you have that to me, it's much more about figuring out what kind of on-ramp is going to work for your business. So uh, one company that I love is a company called Zapier. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't actually understand how important SEO has been in the success of Zapier. So uh, there's some really great teardowns on this online, but you can actually see how they very methodically created content that was extremely relevant to a very, very specific use case. You could almost call it like use case marketing. Uh, and we're able to use really programmatically generated content to sort of self-service onboard customers. Um, and you can look at other categories. Another company I'm a really big fan of is LaunchDarkly. LaunchDarkly is basically Feature Flags as a service. Uh, they created a whole separate content marketing site called Feature Flags.io. And they very just consistently pumped out really on a weekly uh, and monthly basis 
basis, very, very specific content about the set of problems that their customers uh, were trying to solve. And we're able to acquire a large number of customers through that, that channel. And so in both those cases, I call those on ramps. And I, I would have thought, you know, 10 years ago, I'd spend much more time on the actual product uh, and expecting to be able to sell that like in a room, uh, in a, you know, a sales meeting or in a conference in a sort of one to many environment. Whereas now you just have so many opportunities to distribute that content to solve a very specific problem for a customer that's looking for it online. And I think we've just never had more distribution channels for those solutions. Also, Oren, one of the things you've talked about is that who you know versus what you know has become less important in the sense that what you know has become more important relative to, to who you know in, in terms of building a business. And I remember coming to you many years ago and, and uh, it was actually kind of funny. I was you know, coming to you and saying, well, look at, you know, you've been able to do multiple things at the same time and you've built a strong network. And the sort of advice you gave me was do one thing at a time and be an expert. And it's sort of like, if I came to Steph Curry and was like, I want to shoot threes and he's like, post up, uh, and, uh, go to the, you know, dunk. How would you sort of unpack that? Well, I mean, what you know and who you know are both important, but I think now what you know is more important than who you know, whereas in the past, who you knows were more important than what you knows. How did that change and what are the implications of that? I think the, the, in some ways, the who you knows used to kind of be what you knows because if I knew Eric and I knew Todd and I could talk to Eric and get all Eric's great ideas and then I can go meet with Todd and I can get Todd's all great ideas and you weren't able to talk to one another, then I had this, uh, monopoly on knowledge and I was able to really grow. And so these, these, what often the, the, the who you knows became what you knows by default. And if you think of the 80s, all the dominant professions that we think about in the 80s were the who you know professions, the the venture, uh, sorry, the uh, corporate lawyer, the uh, investment banker, the real estate agent, right? They're all the who you knows. The more dominant professions today are like the hedge fund managers, right? So you see the investment banker morph into the hedge fund manager. The hedge fund manager is much more what you know than a who you know. So who you know is still important, but it's a lot easier to know new people today. It's a lot easier to find people, uh, than, than it was in the past. And so if you're giving, if I was giving advice to someone who's kind of at the margin between the two, definitely would give them advice to kind of hunker down and really become a what you know. That's going to be valued a lot more. And what you know is are just much more easily discoverable today than they were in the past. I was just going to say, I think, you know, I, I wrote that I think the greatest compliment you can pay an entrepreneur now is to call them a learn it all. And, you know, that, that was definitely not the, the sort of statement I would have heard in 2006. And I just think now when I think about the entrepreneurs that, you know, I respect the most and people who seem to be making the biggest impact are people that are either had that know it all because they've been learning for the last 10 years or they're just hyper focused on that being their differentiation on a go forward basis. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Ty, if you had to sort of describe what is Orin's, what you know, or, or superpower as it relates to that, how, how would you, how would you describe it? Is it a combination of expert expertise? Cause most people aren't, aren't specialists, right? So most people are trying to combine some sort of set of, of knowledge that makes them, makes them unique. Yeah. I mean, I, I would sort of describe, I think Orin has three superpowers. The first is he's just an in incredibly curious person. Uh, and so I've been at hundreds of events with Orin and, 
Um, you know, he is constantly asking questions, you know, trying to get the non-obvious answer, uh, you know, sort of stepping out of his comfort zone to figure out something that that maybe wasn't a, a core knowledge set before. And so I think fundamentally curiosity is really important. The second is he's probably the hardest working person I know. And I, I always joke about this, but it's actually true. Uh, we were setting a weekly meeting uh, about a month ago and he sent me two times. One was a Mondays at 11 a.m. and the other was Tuesdays at 8.30 p.m. Uh, it's the only person who's ever sent me a, a weekly meeting request for potentially 8.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. And the third is, you know, Orrin has a tremendously deep uh, set of relationships um, that are really just cross-sector politics, business, uh, academics. Uh, I've actually said he's the most uh, connected person who's not a celebrity I've ever met. Um, and uh, I think it's – you really combine sort of curiosity, work ethic, and this incredible breadth of uh, relationships, and you have a really unique right. person. And besides the curiosity, can I give you Todd's? Or yeah. <laughs> let me just double down, double down yours while you're stalling to think of Todd's. If you say, you know, besides curiosity, work ethic, to what do you credit your skill set in terms of uh, building those relationships and building that network? What what's sort of not obvious that people can can learn? I, I don't I don't know that people should like look to me or anyone else. They should follow their own path and um, but. But being curious is, is an important thing. And one, one thing is that I respect deeply in others is are they a deep reader? Are they a deep learner? Are they trying to, are they always in a book? Are they always in interesting articles? Are they talking to you about interesting ideas? Or are they just talking to you about like events and people? Most of the great entrepreneurs, inventors, et cetera, they're always like reading. They're always thinking about other things. They're always trying to get themselves better. Sometimes in, in areas that they, they don't really know that much about. Yeah. What would you describe as uh, Todd's superpower or superpowers? There's a few things about Todd. So one thing that most people might not know about Todd is that he's good at everything. There is literally not like a single thing. Like if you play any sport with Todd. I play basketball with him. Yeah. So he's, yeah, yeah. he's at least good at that sport. And in some things he's, 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 he's at the great level, but he's at least good. Or if you want to ask him about. From the most weirdest stuff like, you know, music or movies or books or whatever. Like he can go through anything and he's like, at least at the good level. Most, most people I know, like there's just like a whole load of stuff where they're just terrible at. Um, and Todd is like at least good at everything. And then in some things he's just at the very great thing. Um, the other thing, uh, my, 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 the other thing is there's, there's really only two business people in the world that everybody likes. And it's Warren Buffett and Todd Satridoni. That's it. There's no other people. There's no other people that have like a hundred percent approval rating amongst their peers. So he's just like this amazing person who, uh, can, um, people can find and maybe because he is good at everything, like he can find a way to connect with every single person where most people, um, uh, or most people. And then the last thing is he's just a voracious reader so todd is like sometimes like telling me oh yeah i was reading this like random book on you know art at 3 a.m or something like that and he's just like constantly read and he reads physical books so he's really like in the book like like reading these physical books most of us like maybe do like audiobook or we're you know on a kindle show but he's like and so i think with the physical book you're really actually retaining that knowledge a lot more and so and he's he's downing these books at a rate that most people you know haven't done since college i should add eric's actually a pretty good basketball player so <laughs> thank you i was getting jealous all these compliments flying up i appreciate that so you know each other's skill sets you've worked together for a long time you decide we're hey we're, we're going to team up start a fund together how do you sort of think about venture capital and where your fund sits in in the market and how you thought about differentiation and just where we are at right now in 2019 in, in venture capital 
I mean, I would say first and foremost, Orin and I have been investing for a long time. Uh, between the two of us, we've invested in over 150 companies. Over the last three years, we really shared kind of all of our deal flow and figured out ways in which we could collaborate, which then led into being kind of a more institutional uh, firm. So at, at, at the core, I think this is really an extension of what we were already doing. But we're just now much more structured in terms of, you know, what we're focused on. We're obviously investing significantly more capital. Uh, but again, at the core, we're really leveraging our relationships, our operational expertise, and we're trying to find ways in which we can add value to, you know, a company that wouldn't, you know, fit in a traditional venture capital model. And I mean, if you think of like, what are the venture capital institutions or what are the financial institutions that are really changing things or really changing the games? I mean, you can run, most people think of the things like YC or AngelList. They're coming up with new and innovative, really interesting products and they're doing interesting new things with them. Some of the traditional venture capitals are amazing and they give great advice and they're, they're incredible, but they're not innovating at the same rate as some of, some of these newer things. And so those, some of these newer companies, if you think of YC, I mean, YC is just the, the best venture capital firm. They're just amazing at what they do. They're so effective. Um, they have these incredible network effect. They have pricing power that really no other venture capital firm has. Uh, and so, you know, when we, we think of these different firms or Village Global has a whole new way of thinking about it. You have the scout program. We have a new way of thinking about it. So coming up with something new and different, something differentiating, it's an incredible competitive market. And so you want to have something where it makes you different, uh, to, to compete. Right. One of the things that you've written about, Arn, is how venture is broken in some ways. Uh, one of the way, ways, you know, the smart criticisms of venture that you have is that sort of venture capital firms will advise their CEOs, uh, to one, only have one CEO, uh, to, you know, think about having a data moat and, uh, you know, a whole other set of advice that they themselves will not follow. Why is that? Or, or unpack more about what's broken in, in VC and, and why that's the case. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't say it's broken. But some venture capital firms are just less ambitious than others. So it's really just a level of ambition. Uh, when you're, when you're looking for a founder to invest in, one of the most important things you're looking at is how ambitious is this? And so one of the reasons that venture capitalists ask the TAM question isn't always because they care about the TAM, but, but they're really trying to look at the ambition of the person and our ambition of the team. And do I want to, do I want to put money into this team? A lot of traditional venture capitalists are really just doing the same thing that other folks have done. Um, there's not that much of a different, uh, and so their ambition is relatively limited. Whereas if you think of YC, the ambition of YC is just so off the charts and they're just doing so many things. Every few months they're coming up with like a new thing that they're doing, a new innovative thing. Um, and so understanding like that, or if you, if you think of like a big, um, a big financial institution like Blackstone, we're both huge fans of Todd and I are big, big fans of Blackstone, like just an incredibly ambitious um, financial institution. Every few years, they have a whole new innovation that they've done. They've incubated really great companies that have come out of Blackstone. So those are the types of uh, companies that we admire when we look to these great financial institutions. It tells more about Blackstone, actually, because, you know, listeners understand YC, you know, started with this sort of core accelerator model and it doubled down on and it continued to expand it, but also, you know, you know added a growth fund and doing things like cities and basic income, but uh, may not be familiar with with Blackstone and their rise. So why don't you unpack what you're so inspired about about Blackstone and how that's evolved over time? 
I mean, I would say at the core, many of these firms are money management firms. And so the concept that you would start a money management firm and only focus on one asset class for the entire like duration of the firm's life at its core just seems crazy to me. Uh, so many of the disciplines of running a venture capital firm are similar to running a debt fund, running a private equity fund, running a hedge fund, all the skill sets around fundraising and LP relationships, sort of how you, you know, train and scale a team over time, how you manage economics. If you look at all those things, firms like Blackstone and others have built, you know, powerful funds in, in almost every single asset class of significance. They've birthed other companies that have been, you know, hugely successful money management firms in their own right. Um, so to me, it's like at its core, like, what are you trying to build? I think if you're just simply building a venture capital firm focused on series A investing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just relatively a kind of a, a humble set of ambitions relative to trying to build a big firm that can compete in many asset classes over time. Yeah. And so for your firm, is your firm more directionally things that seem obvious and now you're, un you're, you differentiate in how you add value or how you get into those firms or are you picking companies that other firms wouldn't pick? I would never describe anything I do as I'm looking for what's obvious and right. I'm just spending all my time there. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that, you know, Orrin and I have spent a lot of time about trying to figure out at what point can we identify, you know, something that's uh, meets a set of criteria that we think is important in terms of the long-term differentiation of the company that's earlier than other people will identify it. Um, because I think the, the term obvious is exactly the wrong point to invest. Once something's obvious, um, I think a lot of the value is gone. And in many cases, you might be, you know, overpaying for an asset. So we, we've spent a lot of time trying to, and maybe we haven't figured it out perfectly, but we're really trying to optimize that, you know, sort of stage of a company where, again, not only can we identify it, but I think we can actually add significant value where, you know, our conversation, you know, with an entrepreneur is just fundamentally different than another person's conversation would be. Well, one of the things is as an entrepreneur is you might not want a venture firm that's incredibly ambitious on your board, because if they're incredibly ambitious, they may not have as much time for you. So the maybe the most ambitious firms are the ones that are less likely to take board seats. And then you also maybe want a less ambitious firm to be on your board to help you and guide you and do other types of things. So, you know, like YC is incredibly ambitious firm, but they're not like generally on boards of companies. Yeah. When you look out as to the future of, of how you think the, you know, the asset class of venture capital will evolve over the next 10 years, what do you expect or what do you think that's not obvious that, that will will happen. I mean, some people with Keith or Boy going to Founders Fund were saying that, joking that the VC starting to look like the NBA in terms of free agency. And, and that's how, you know, firms build up by sort of swooping in and taking from, from other, other firms. How, how do you expect the asset class to evolve? Other people say it's going to be more about, uh, you know, the Andreessen strategy of multi-asset firms. You have a general fund, you have a bio fund, you have a crypto fund, late stage, what social capital was trying to do, late stage, early stage hedge fund. How do you think? Well, one thing is to, to think about is like, do you, to scale, the fund, do you need to have these incredibly amazing people and do you need to recruit these people who've like sold companies for billions of dollars into your firm? Is that the only way you can scale this fund? And that is basically how a lot of well-known venture capital funds have done is they've recruited these incredible people into their fund who are already incredible before they join the fund. And obviously those people are, are because they're, they're incredible. They're incredibly expensive. And therefore the profit of the fund is not going to be as, as good. Or is there a way to scale the fund 
with with really good people, but was is there able is are you are you getting more leverage somehow? And to me, the better business model long term is the model where you can get good people and uh, and where those good people can do more things rather than you have to get like Reed Hoffman to join your fund, right? I mean, of course, everyone will want Reed Hoffman in their fund, um, but it's incredibly difficult to recruit Reed Hoffman to your fund. Right. What are examples of of uh, getting more leverage? What what might that look like? Well, I, I think something like AngelList is is a is a good example of a fund. I mean, most uh, mo- most people don't know any; they can't except for the C, uh, the founder don't know anybody at AngelList. Um, there's incredibly talented people that work there, but they're not they're not as well known as the as Keith or Re- or these you know these other these other great people. Um, and and uh, but it's a it's a firm that has lots of leverage and can do lots of things over and over. And in some ways, it looks much more like a Google or uh, like a Facebook or et cetera than it does like a traditional partnership type of fund. I was going to add, you know, it's, I think it's very provocative to say in the next 10 years, you know, VC funds that are not run by former founders are going to fail. Or in the next 10 years, you know, series A only venture funds, like, you know, are going to squeeze it out of the market. Everyone tries to find the, the sort of single line that's provocative and compelling. And my feeling is it's actually extremely hard to generalize uh, on what's going to happen over the next 10 years. And it's because of the fundamental reason that there's like literally never a better time to be starting or investing in software companies. The markets have never been larger. The significance of software has never been more important to, you know, society and almost every business vertical you can think of. So my personal belief is that there are going to be lots of winners and lots of ways to win. Um, you know, I'm personally, I belong starting a software company. I'm long venture capital firms focused on software. I'm long private equity firms focused on software. I'm long, you know, software companies that are public. I mean, I just think there's so many ways to win in this, in this business that you're going to see, you know, all the categories you mentioned have winners in them. Yeah. I remember asking you about your angel experience, Oren, and one of the things you were sort of humble about was, I've been angel investing in the best market. You know, anybody who was angel investing at the time that I was in angel investing was, was doing well. That's right. To what extent do you expect that to continue? I don't know, but it is, I mean, if you, if anyone looks at their track record at the last 10 years, it has been an amazing time to invest. Uh, the unfortunate thing in investing in private companies is there's no equivalent to an S&P 500. So if you invest in the public markets, you know, okay, were you better or worse than the S&P 500? And then, and then maybe if you were tech investing in the public markets, you know, were you better or worse than the tech benchmarks that, that existed, um, that are out there? It's very hard to know, um, as a private investor, uh, in, in tech companies to know how good you are. Um, the one thing is that it has been an incredibly good market to invest in. And if you invested, you know, maybe from, 2001 to 2008, the same investor may have not been as good of an investor. Yeah. I mean, there's apologies for the fantasy football reference, but there's, there's this phrase about, uh, in fantasy football about falling in the end zone. The concept is if you hand the running back a ball enough times within the five yard line, eventually they'll fall in the end zone. And I think, you know, angel investing over the last 15 years, there've been a lot of opportunities to fall in the end zone. I think that the question will ultimately be over the next, you know, five to 10 years, is it going to be as common as it was in the past? Or is it just the sheer number of companies that are being created that it's going to, your percentage goes down. And if you take on a valuation adjusted 
adjusted basis, the seed rounds being much more expensive, you could say it's, it's almost harder and the economics are worse. Um, but you know, everyone likes to focus on these outlier cases and on average, we're still going to put, produce great returns. So my, my gut would be in aggregate, it'll look similar, but you know, individual performance will vary. One of the interesting things when we, Todd and I recently evaluated our portfolio of all these 150 companies. There were actually quite a lot of 1x returns, which obviously are, are bad if you have a 1x return over four years. It's a negative IRR, but it's still not as bad as zero. And it was actually very surprising to me that there were that many 1x returns. I would have thought there were just way more zeros that would have happened. And that may not happen in the future because maybe some of those 1x returns are like more accu-hire type of things. Or uh, And so you could see a scenario where like you still have these huge winners, but when you lose, you go to zero. Yeah. And were there any concrete lessons that you gleaned from viewing your portfolio up, you know, after a decade plus? It, um, or was it more, hey, there's a lot of luck to this. Like, were there any like specific things of, Hey, when we invested this way or in this type of thing, we, we did much better and that would change our behavior moving forward. Um, two things really stood out to me. I'd say the first is investing in people that I knew very well. It seemed to on, on, you know, on a metrics basis outperform, you know, categories or any like market strategy I was pursuing where it was just investing in people I had proprietary data about who are amazing, you know, sort of outperformed the average by a significant amount. I think the second is in this category that we spend all of our time focused on right now around B2B platforms. It was nearly impossible to figure out at the incubation stage whether a company could be a B2B platform. Uh, and I think that that was, you know, a big surprise to me considering we had thought that had been our focus area. We'd been successful there. Uh, but sort of at the very, very beginning stage, it's very hard to know with essentially no data and no traction, you know, what the likelihood of success is in being a real B2B platform long term. One of the number one reason for failures for companies failing. At least, at least in, in when, when we did our analysis, the number one, and there wasn't even a close number two, was that the entrepreneurs gave up. And so the, it really focused on kind of like the tenacity of the, um, and the ambition of the person. I, I don't really know how to do that, but if you can really figure out, are they going to stay with this when things are hard? Um, or are they going to, are the type of person you're going to give up? Can they, can they overcome these really, really difficult challenges? Company, every single company, it's, it's really hard to find a company, even an extremely successful company that doesn't go through a lot of very, very difficult challenges, internal things and personnel stuff, uh, you know, things with the product not working outside people telling you you're going to fail. Uh, there's so many different things that exist and you need people that are going to be able to go through that and, and really stick through that. Yeah. Makes me think there are two things. One is another reason companies or founders give up is they run out of money. And so founders who've had a previous success or have more resources will have an advantage there in terms of being able to keep, to keep going. But yet investors, I don't find myself often asking my founders, Hey, how much, you know, how much can you keep going beyond, beyond the burn? But maybe I should be more, more forward about that. I don't, I'm not sure that, that our, our data lines up with that. So there's something intrinsic about, uh, you know, cause it could be that that person maybe had a lot of money, but they didn't go through a lot of adversity right. to get it. And then once the big sign of adversity comes, they just kind of check out and they, you know, they go play golf or something cause they can. It's not, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure what, 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 how, how you would find that out from like past types yeah. of things. I would also, there is so much capital available yeah. now. <laughs> like this concept that I, I mean, I'm Paul Graham writes about this always that companies run out of money. It's like, I mean, it's so hard to run out of money right now. There's so much capital in the Valley. Um, so, you know, I always ask the question is, 
did the company run out of money or did the person who's running it decide to stop raising? Right. I mean, it's like there are a lot of sources of capital. Yeah, or do they not make the hard choices like a year before when it's obvious? Like it's you, it's hard to just run out the next day of money, right? Usually you have a multi-year understanding of what's happening. And so you see these companies that do run out of money. That, that, that is that is you're just a mismanagement issue where they they ran out the next day or something they thought something they were going to raise money and then the raise didn't come through and they 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 ran out but that but usually that isn't the case there are some companies that 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 go out of business because there's a mismanagement but i think a lot of it's because they just either didn't want to make the hard choices a year before or they they um they they just gave up right well the second thing that made, made me think is Will there be almost like a matter mark for people? Like, will there be, will we eventually, you know, be able to predict what sort of aligns with or correlates with being able to handle adversity? Maybe it's for people from this area or people who grow up in this way or I don't know, what sort of signals might, might we be able to predict in sort of a more macro perspective? I think it's really hard also because people change. And so their personalities change and different things happen. And when Todd and I started our last company, we didn't have kids. Now we have kids. Maybe we're going to, maybe we're less good entrepreneurs today than we were before. Maybe we're better today than we were before, but we're certainly different people than we were before or different stages of our life. We have different kind of things that are going on. And so it's hard to say like something that you did 10 years ago is extremely predictive of something you're going to do 10 years from now. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. I want to focus on sort of identifying talent for a second. You know, Keith Roboy has this great line that Peter told him when he was at Founders Fund. Oh, so when he was at um, PayPal, hey, we're not going to be able to compete with the incumbents on the best talent in terms of getting, you know, giving the best offers. So we have to identify talent before other people have identified them. How do you think about identifying sort of arbitrage talent or, or young talent uh, early, you know, are, you know, we met when I was doing 23, 24. How do you think about what do you look for in either young people or people that have been passed over to see people before others do? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, I absolutely agree with Keith's comment on this. Um, I think from an HR perspective, it's not advisable to talk about hiring young people. Right. <laughs> um, but the term we used at Brightroll was rising stars. Yeah. And we were trying to identify people that were, you know, early in the career category that they were focused on and showing early signs of significant growth. You know, I think it's, I like his positioning of, you know, we're a PayPal and we're competing against like Google. The reality is 90% of companies don't have the luxury of even thinking they're in the category of any of these companies, right? You hire out of necessity. And so the only people we could hire were rising stars. And, you know, I just think we found ways to identify those people, you know, focus all of our efforts on, you know, training them and getting them up to speed. And they became the the formula for success at, at Brightroll. And I would assume other than hiring people we know personally, because we now have a much larger network, um, you know, the same strategy would apply today as it would have 10 years ago. I think another way to look at it is just very few really, really talented people. So there's one thing, just can you identify these talented people? But there are so many people trying to identify these talented people today. And there's such a, a big market for competition of other folks who are trying to identify these talented people that even if you identify them, you're likely not going to be able to get them to join your company. And so if I was advising a company, I would say the number one thing you should be doing is trying to figure out a way to run your company with fewer people. And most companies today, I think, probably have anywhere between 5x to 10x the number of people that they need to have. And they should be thinking about how to have fewer people who are insanely great use vendors or other types of things outside of that. Uh, and that just seems like a much more scalable way for the future. You don't need to have as many people as you used to in the past to do the same thing. Right. And so what questions should people be asking that will help them better 
sort of filter who they hire. So their, their bar is 10 times higher. Or they're hiring 10 X less people. Well, I, I mean, I think everyone's going to have a different way of coming out of that, but you're, I think most CEOs, if you ask most CEOs, what are you spending all your time on? They're spending like all their time recruiting people and it's just really hard to recruit people. And, and so maybe you should be spending more of your time figuring out how you could not recruit people, right? So how can, what can you do to gain leverage? What can you do to grow your company in a way where you don't, you, in the PayPal days when they were giving offers, they were having like 80% acceptance rate of those offers. There's zero companies today who have like acceptance rate above, let's say 30%. And if your acceptance rate is above 30%, your bar is just way, way, way too low. And so your, your most companies, like their acceptance rate is like even below that, you know, by acceptance rate, really be like, if they've identified someone, like, can they get this person to go join their company? For most companies, it's like under 1%. Like if you identify someone, you can't even get them to interview with you, right? Um, it's just so hard to get this person in the door to even talk to you about something. So, it's just incredibly difficult to, even if we identify this super talented person, they're going to have many, many other things. They may not even want to talk to you. They have so many inbound things that even if you're the perfect fit for them, they might not even know. It's imagine this like super good looking person on Tinder or something. They just have so many inbound requests that even if you are the right match for this person, they may never know because they're just overwhelmed with all the other requests that come in. So yeah, if CEOs are spending less time recruiting and more time, say, you know, uh, focusing on Vendors, is it possible that that vendor selection becomes you know commoditized or automated over time, or will you know CEOs become continue to be artisans of picking the right vendors in the right context, like chefs? Well, I don't know. The one nice thing is if you identify a vendor, um, let's say an API that is great for your company there's a 100% chance that they will sell to you, right? So if you go through the effort of like trying to figure out what's the right, is what's the right um, uh, uh, messaging API, you come down to Twilio is the right thing for your company. You looked at all the others and you came down, okay, Twilio, they will sell to you. And you know roughly what the price is ahead of time of what that, of what that is going to be. So all the research of what you're doing, all the time you're spending on it is not for naught. In the end, you're going to be able to make a selection and you're going to be able to use one. And then the, the, the other beautiful thing about vendors is most of them are designed today in a way that makes you really easy to replace them. They know that the way to get to sell to you is, a, is to show you that you can replace them at any time. And so they're making it easier and easier to replace them because they have confidence that they're so good. Twilio has such good confidence that they're the best tool for you that they're okay if you want to replace them at any point in time. And their churn is extremely low because they're a great tool. So if they're not working for you later, you can replace it relatively easy. It's just an input and output. If you spend all this effort trying to hire someone, most, you know, most of the people you'll talk to, they'll say, okay, we're, we have a 70% rate of, of, of success or 50% rate of success, but, you know, or whatever your rate of success is. Now you have to then, they have to go through the whole process again of that person's not working. Maybe it's a six month process of finding a new, and then you've got this six month gap where you don't have the person in your org. So it becomes a very, very difficult thing to manage. Yeah. Let's talk about some other things uh, that have changed building companies early 2000s, you know, and now in, in, in 2019, uh, things that you either believe that other people don't believe about company building or, or things that perhaps you've changed your mind on. Uh, one example, maybe we start with Todd, is that you took your old Brightroll team and have sort of thought differently about the concept of co-founders um, or, or, or founding teams or done it a bit differently. Why don't you talk about what the thinking there was and, and what, what you learned or what advised other people based on your experience? 
I mean, I'm not sure that my thinking has changed dramatically on this. I mean, when I, when I started my last company, my relationship with engineers was fundamentally different than it is today. Uh, I think the ability to hire talent was different than it is today. So, I mean, I guess the way you could describe it differently is I think the more people that are, you know, in the superstar category that you can have as part of your founding team, given the challenge of attracting tier one talent and the amount of productivity you can have with a small number of people, uh, I think I'm much more biased to larger founder teams if their relationships are really tight and the talent level is really high. Uh, but I don't think it's a requirement. So I, I mean, to put it in the context of would I advise other people to follow the exact same path? I think it's, it's different. I mean, my, uh, my team today is eight people. The least amount of time I've worked with any of them is six years. Uh, so that's like a very unique set of relationships that I think is hard to replicate or advise others to pursue. Yeah. What, what else in terms of company building then have you, have either of you changed your mind on or, or think differently than, than others do today that we haven't yet covered in this podcast? Well, there could be something that worked for you. Maybe you didn't change your mind, but there could be something that worked for you five years ago that is maybe going to be less likely to work for you today because everyone else thinks the same way. Um, and so, for instance, like at LiveRamp, we did a really good job of recruiting out of college and recruit these superstars out of college. And when we started doing that, we're often the only startup that was recruiting. And so when we went to Harvard, we're really the only one there that was recruiting. And, you know, we still had like the Googles of the world and, but mainly we're competing with like Google and Goldman Sachs. And so we just had the pick of who we wanted. Um, by the time I left LiveRamp, every startup was there. And so it was, it started off as a good strategy. Later, it was not such a good strategy because everyone else agreed. So the best strategies of all these things are the ones that other people don't think are good strategies or haven't considered as strategies. Once everyone thinks it's a good strategy, it becomes a more difficult strategy. Yeah. I mean, just two things that jump to mind that may not be the core of your question, but I think are interesting is how certain things now seem to me so so obvious or so, you know, important in terms of long-term differentiation that when I was running Brightroll, I couldn't have imagined. So the first is like, we don't use email at all. You know, when I ran Brightroll, email was probably the most important communication mechanism in the entire company. Uh, and if you had asked me, like, could you imagine running a company without using email? It would have been absolutely not. Uh, I think I was even at, you know, roundtable discussions or dinners where, you know, somebody would bring it up and I thought, oh, it's blasphemy. It's impossible. Um, now it's, you know, fundamentally, we don't, we, we run the business on Slack and I think that will clearly scale up to a number of people until it doesn't. But I think that's at least, you know, probably at least 50 people that could scale to. I think the second thing is, I thought the concept of a purely remote team was almost like a fantasy. I mean, I remember Tony Schneider at WordPress sort of telling me about how they built that business over time. It seemed impossible to me that that could be replicated. You know, now you look at, you know, GitLab or Zapier or companies that are much more transparent than companies were 10 years ago, fully distributed from, you know, literally from the first employee on. Uh, it's very clear to me now how that could scale in a way that wasn't, you know, I would say even in the consideration set in my last company. So um, I don't know if those are, again, requirements or advice. I just think that um, it's much easier now to try these things, experience them and say, now I can much imagine, more imagine that being a core part of the company. Do you think San Francisco becomes less powerful over time if you can build companies in, in other places? So I, I'm, I'm personally very long San Francisco, um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean to me that there aren't huge amounts of success outside of San Francisco. I, I go back to, again, my core comment that I am, I am long software, I'm long technology, and there are going to be lots of winners. 
I don't see any reason why San Francisco will not be the most important and frankly, the most powerful place in the world related to technology over the next 10 years. Uh, but to me, that doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, there are just constraints. I mean, San Francisco is only so big. Uh, it's extremely expensive. There are these fundamental reasons why it's going to probably reduce its sort of unique position in the market over time. But I still believe in 10 years, it'll be extremely important and extremely powerful. Yeah. San Francisco is in some ways really great on the tails and maybe not so good in the middle. Um, and so it's great for if you're a young person and right out of college or didn't even skip college, like San Francisco is a great place. You could give 50, 60, 70% of your disposable income to, to rent. You can live with roommates, et cetera. If you've made it and you have a gazillion dollars in the bank, you know, San Francisco is also a great place and you can do all these really good things. The, pr the problem is, is that fat middle that's in between. You're in your, you know, in your thirties, you're starting a family. You want a place with good schools. You want a well run city. You want things that are family friendly. You want things that are affordable. You want to have a yard. You want to do some of these other types of things. Uh, San Francisco becomes a very difficult place to be there. And so you could see an exodus of these really talented people that you need in a company. Um, you can't just have 23 year olds and people that are gazillionaires. Um, you need other people. Um, to make a, uh, to make a society work. Yeah. You know, one thing or, or you've, you've done this year is you've, um, written a lot more. Can you talk about the, the inspiration for that and what you're, what you're trying to accomplish there? Well, I'm, I, I do like writing. I personally just write for myself. So it's really an audience of one. I find that writing helps me make my thought process better. I write a lot also internally. So internally in the company, I write, I sometimes write a lot of things that I don't publish, but by, by having this ability to publish and putting something out there and get comments on it, not only do I, I feel like it's a force multiplier because I can put to, I can synthesize my thoughts on something and then put it out there. And then people will send me comments and tell me how I'm stupid about something or how something is wrong or how I didn't think of something in the right way. And often they're right or they make me think about something in a new, in, in, a, in an interesting way that I haven't thought. Uh, I think the most important thing that one should think about if they're writing is to, is to kind of discount their past self heavily. Uh, and so basically anything I wrote more than like a few months ago, I just, I just assume that's not even me. That's like another person that wrote that. And people will come back to me with something sometimes I wrote like two years ago and I'm like, and they're like, talk to me about that. I'm like, well, actually I've completely changed my mind about that particular thing. So, so I think it's okay as long as you're, you're willing to say that that past guy who wrote that thing is complete idiot. And I completely disavow that guy. Yeah, I was going to add, I, I think there's never been a more important time to write. And I think that a lot of things we've talked about today, whether it's, you know, on ramps for, you know, identifying and onboarding customers through all of these distribution channels that we have, it requires writing. And of course, if the, you know, founder CEO is the one doing the writing, it's the most effective uh, possible. You, you can't manage remote teams unless you have a very strong sort of documentation and writing culture inside a company. Uh, and I think you can never, you know, build a strong personal brand uh, outside of these kind of extreme outlier cases without, you know, con creating content and having it distributed online. 
Um, and I'll give you just like a, a funny relevant example today. I posted something on Hacker News, uh, and I've been testing, you know, what content resonates on Hacker News over the last few weeks. And it actually went to the front page and it went to number one on Hacker News. And it brought this guy's site down because the article was written in 2009 and it was totally not, you know, optimized for, you know, modern distribution channels. And it just was relevant to me. Here's a guy who actually writes books. Uh, somebody random person posts his article from 10 years ago and his site goes down. And it, so just again, highlights to me the power of, I don't think writing has ever been more valuable or more important than today. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I want to put one more thread on the what you know versus versus who you know because it's interesting because you, you you guys both think about education and education. You know, rote memorization used to be I don't know more popular, but people are sort of railing against it now. And also because it's easier to get to other people, you can get to other experts and sort of almost use them as APIs for for knowledge or almost like information vendors in some capacity. So. What is important to know, or, 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 or if you're able to leverage these APIs or these these information vendor, intellectual vendors, what is important to distinctly know, or, or what's most valuable when when thinking about being a, a what you know? Well, I, I don't I don't know that it really just depends on that person, but sometimes the intersection of two random things it becomes really valuable, and so people often think, well, I need to be the best at X. And, um, and they define X so narrowly that it'll make really, really difficult. Like I need the best person at shooting threes or something like that becomes really hard to be the best at that, but it's actually pretty easy to become the best at two intersection of two things or the intersection of three things. Like maybe being the best software developer is really hard and maybe being the best uh, marine biologist is really hard. But being like the best intersection of the two, um, maybe actually isn't that hard at all. And there may be a lot of advantages of being the best intersection of those two. And now you know, like, I don't know how whales communicate and you could use how whales communicate and code that in a, in a, a blockchain way or yeah, something, you totally. know? I mean, do, do you ever find yourself getting excited about a topic and then realizing, Hey, that person's been studying it for a decade. I'm never going to become as smart as them. Uh, I'll sort of let them be the expert at it and, and connect to them. And I, I've sort of thought about it in my own context as a venture capitalist. I've thought, Hey, uh, I was going to deep in healthcare. And then I was like, oh, there are people who, who spent a lot more time. How can I find, you know, sort of areas that are, that are new where there's no, no history. So I'm on the same footing as, as other people or areas that are controversial to some extent. You know, there's some barriers for other people to enter. So income share agreements is, is one example where I've, I've been excited because there isn't too much history around them. And it sort of takes a special person to want to, or a person who can risk social disapproval. Do those ideas resonate with you? I would make the comment that I think in, in all of, you know, my professional life, being an expert in an emerging category, you know, sort of put you on a level playing field with everybody else and allowed you to kind of be early and differentiated. I think what's fundamentally different now is that it's actually much easier to be, you know, up to speed slash an expert in categories than it was before. So if I take a subject that, you know, I studied and it took me 10 years to be an expert in, I think today you can probably become an expert in a year or two. And so I think that it's, you know, while it's always a good idea to, you know, differentiate an emerging field, and that's frankly what I did at Brightroll, I think I wouldn't, I would recommend people don't be intimidated by, you know, combining one category, which you're already an expert in and becoming an expert in maybe a traditional category, because I think the, all the tools that are available online to become an expert are just so much better than they were a decade ago that you can probably get that second category under your belt quicker than, you know, your own experience would suggest. And, and you also don't have to be so, so focused on becoming an expert, you could just learn for fun 
And uh, you can do, you, you mentioned income share. I, I, every month I try to just take a new topic and just learn it. And it probably will have no advantage. It's just like for fun, just to learn about something. And so I, uh, a few months ago, I took a month and tried to read everything I could about income share agreements. Um, and it was fun. It was interesting. And I, I doubt I'll ever use it in any way, but I thought it was like a, a fascinating thing. And you might do another month where you're going to learn about like Roman history and another month where you learn about, um, you know, uh, a French art or you know, there could be so many different things that you decide to learn about. And there's, there's that, that's just fun and interesting. And that's what we're humans are about. We have this quest to find new knowledge. Yeah. And are there any, any non-obvious things you do during the, those months to learn most effectively? Is, or is it sort of your expected combination of books, podcasts, experts? I, I think probably I'm very suboptimal about how I learn. And I wish there was some, better app or something to help me learn at a better rate or some, maybe I could hire a tutor to help me or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I would make two comments. I don't think these are non-obvious, but I'd say the first is there's almost no topic that comes up where I don't quickly need to get up to speed on it. And I go order like five to 10 books. Um, and I think some people are like, well, why, why just figure out the right one? I'll just order one or you know, I'll just read, but it's like to me, like almost every topic has five to 10 books, just buy all of them. And then, you know, start reading them. If one sucks, throw it away. I mean, it's just, it's not that complicated, but very few people actually do that. And I think the second is, is that the breadth of coverage now on podcasts is truly incredible. And, you know, most people don't spend the time to find, again, I'd pursue the exact same strategy. There's probably five to 10 podcasts on almost every topic that you should dive into. Again, you're going to drop, you know, three quarters of them over the first couple of weeks, but just rapidly consume content around that topic. And, you know, it just, it's, it's like a just do it thing. Like most people just don't actually go through the effort to consume the content and start there. Yeah. I'm curious. One of the th- themes we've talked about this episode is, is getting leverage. Are, are there ways in which you guys get leverage in non-obvious ways? For example, do you have uh, chiefs of staff and one of them is reading up on ISAs and then te- <laughs> you know, summarizing it and teaching you? Or Are there other ways in which you get leverage in, in creative ways that you think more people should be doing? I mean, I think the greatest productivity hack is saying no. Uh, you know, somebody tweeted that recently and it just totally resonated with me in that it's really about prioritizing your time. I think, and I'm speaking for Oren here, but I think Oren and I are somewhat unique in the sense that we actually do a lot of things ourselves, uh, which, you know, every, you know, sort of productivity, you know, hack out there is like the chief of staff or outsource. I think it's just, if you're very effective at managing your time and you do a lot yourself, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of value that can be created there. Um, but again, it's like, I'm not sure my system applies to, to everyone else, but I still do a lot of things myself. One of the reasons that there's never been like a billion dollar company that has been in like the to-do list category is that it's so bespoke to each person. A former colleague of mine who's one of the, the, the best people I know at just like managing their time and is super strategic, always get stuff done. Like one day I was like looking over like, how does he do it? And he was managing his to-do list in a Gmail drafts folder. And that's how he did every, and it like worked perfectly for him. And it was like such a weird way of doing it, but it works so well for him. And so I think it's like one of the hardest things to do is to prescribe something to somebody else. You just have to find like what works for you and you're, it's, and also just be okay with not being, be suboptimal. You, you can't just like be so upset at yourself that you're not optimal all the time. Like we're going to be incredibly suboptimal. Yes, there are ways you can get leverage. Yes, there are things you can do to get big steps in, 
in your leverage and your productivity, but you'll always be suboptimal. And sometimes you're just going to want to like want to read a book or watch a movie or spend some time with your spouse or just go for a walk alone. You can't start like over analyzing everything. This is the therapy I need. Guys, it's been a fantastic episode for people who want to learn more about uh, your fund or your companies or your work or your writing. Where can you point them uh, on the internet? I'm at Todd on Twitter and uh, my website is ToddSatcherai.com. It's T-O-D. Yeah. I'm part of the three-letter Twitter handle club. Uh, and uh, I'm at Oren, A-U-R-E-N, at Twitter. And you can also go to my uh, blog, summation.net. Awesome. Thank you guys for coming to the podcast. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 